0: In episode number 41 of the United Methodist People podcast with Rev. Dr. Brad Miller, we talk with Rev. Glenn Knepp of the Ford Street United Methodist Church in LaPel, Indiana, and the author of A Taxonomy of United Methodist centers. Welcome
1: to the United Methodist People podcast with Rev. Dr. Brad Miller. Brad believes that strengthening the connection in the United Methodist Church is essential to accomplishing the mission of making disciples of Jesus Christ for the transformation of the world. The United Methodist People podcast helps clergy and church leaders connect with key insights, hear inspiring stories, and learn from the people making a difference in the United Methodist Church through conversation and commentary. And now... Here's Brad. Hello, good people, and welcome to the United Methodist People podcast
0: with Reverend Dr. Brad Miller, episode number 41. We're talking today with Reverend Glenn who is the pastor of the Ford Street United Methodist Church in Lapel, Indiana. And he comes to us to help us to dig into and develop into the understanding of where we are at right now as United Methodist Christians and where the state of our church is at. The state of our church is we're facing some real dilemmas, and some real struggles, as we face some possible schisms and all kinds of dilemmas. And we broadly have categorized ourselves into three camps. There are those who are traditionalist, and there are those who are progressives, and those are the folks who get a lot of the attention through the various debates that are happening here within, there's a greater group, a larger number of people who may self-identify themselves as centrist. Glenn helps us to delve into a more granularized understanding of what it means to be a centrist in the church and helps us to gain some perspective moving forward of what it means to be a centrist and how that may be a place to guide us moving forward. He calls it an article that he wrote, for United Methodist Insight, which is an online forum, he has an article called The Taxonomy of United Methodist Centric. The taxonomy is an understanding of classification, an understanding of concepts and principles that guide kind of a granular approach to understanding something. There's a kind of a biological underpinning to the understanding And I believe a little bit of this comes from Glenn's background. He comes from a farm background. And he had some studies in agriculture before he went into ministry. And he helps us delve into this and breaks it down to some classifications. And I think you're going to be fascinated by this understanding, especially if you consider yourself a scientist, uh, a person who is looking for common ground, seeing where we can come up in a common way. You're going to be fascinated by this conversation. I invite you to make that connection. You can find his original article. Taxonomy United Methodist Center at um insight.net. We'll put a post of that in our show notes, which you can find at unitedmethodistpodcast.com, along with many other back episodes of the podcast, which are going to be helpful to your ministry. Right now, friends, let's connect up with Reverend Glenn Knepp of the Ford Street United Methodist Church in LaPel, Indiana, and the author of A Taxonomy of United Methodist. Real pleasure today to have as our guest, United Methodist People podcast, Trevor Glenn Nepp from the Ford Street United Methodist Church in Lapel Indiana. He is involved with uh, great things in his local church, but is also involved with, with ministry in the Indiana Conference of United Methodist Church, and we'll talk about some of the details of that in a bit, but he's also quite a wordsmith and quite an author and quite a person involved with great theological thinking, particularly in light of the challenges that uh, we face in our church, particularly he has an interest in understanding the secular age, and he has, um, has some thoughts on that, that he wants to share with us here uh, today. So we welcome to United Methodist People podcast, uh, Pastor Glenn Knapp.
2: Thank you, Brad, and that was quite an introduction. I wish I could get an introduction like that. Well, oh, with
0: such with such uh,
2: superfluous uh, I... description. well, my...
0: since I recorded this here today, you can just uh, play it every Sunday from the pulpit. What do you think? Oh, that'd be, that
2: be that great. One? That'd be a treat. I'll just play it then. I'll play it when I walk in the house. That's true.
0: There you go. And have your uh, you got a wife and four kids, and they're in. And a dog, and you can let them all know that uh, you're entering the room and, uh, and all your glory, right?
2: And this is, this is the good things that Brad Miller had to say about.
0: <laughs> well, that'll that, 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 put a
2: lot of stock in that.
0: Yeah, that'll get you really far in life, my man. But it's, a, <laughs> it's, really, it's really great to have you here. We've got to know each other through some of the various groups that we work on together here in the Indiana Conference. And I know you to be just quite a, a deep, deep, deep thinking guy and uh, who's got a lot to say, a lot of insights into what's going on in the life of our church here. But one of the things i like to do, Glenn, as we get started in our conversations here on the, on the podcast, before we get into some of the deep theological stuff of what's going on in our church right now, I'd like to find out how you got here. So I would just like for you to share a little bit, if you don't mind, about what brought you to Jesus Christ in the first place, so a little bit, little bit about your faith journey, and then how that ended up, navigating your life to now be a pastor in the United Methodist Church in Lapel, Indiana?
2: Yeah, well, I, um, I grew up near Plymouth, Indiana and I was, I was raised on a farm and my, my family were all and, and are all Christians. They're all people who love Jesus. And, um, I grew up, was raised in the Westland church and, um, as I got into high school, I also got really politically active, and my family encouraged that. But but at the point I went to college, I thought um, I thought you know what I'm going to do in college is I'm going to go to Purdue. I'll be an ag econ major, and um, and then I'll come home and I'll work the farm, and at some point I'll I'll go into public service, run for office, something like that. And instead, when I got to Purdue. Uh, and as I went to Purdue, I thought, I'm not going to get connected with a church. I love my church, but I am frustrated with Christians generally and how they responded. At that time, particularly the issues of justice and, and things of that nature. And so I'm not going to get connected with a church, but I did. When I got to Purdue, I, I got roped in at the Wesley Foundation at Purdue. And uh, there I met my wife. Uh, I discerned a call to ministry. And, um, and that call really formulated around a, a trip to Nicaragua. And seeing in Nicaragua um, that the the one the one presence in the world that was able to bring hope to the the folks in the communities we were in really was the church. Uh, And in that case, the Roman Catholic Church, which was offering a, a presence and witness of Jesus Christ and and in some very stark circumstances. And so I thought, okay, that, that's when I discerned a call and thought that's what I'm going to be a part of in my life. Finished, uh, transferred from, from Purdue, went to Indiana-Westland, thinking still I'd be in the Westland Church, even though uh, we'd, we'd gotten that call with the United Methodist Campus Ministry. And as I finished at IWU, uh, I had a United Methodist District Superintendent who reached out, got me into an assignment. And uh, from there... I just grew deeper and deeper uh, into the United Methodist Connection and drank more deeply from the wells, and it is my church; it's where I belong. United Methodist Church. There's no doubt for a long time now, and um, so yeah,
0: that's that's where things began. And that's awesome. So you betrothed. So you felt the call to ministry, and you saw that in a mission setting of some sort in Nicaragua. And it sounded like you had some affirmations from your. Wife and for the Wesley Foundation at Purdue as well, and through yeah. the affirmation, through the district superintendent, and through the church. So you affirmed in, in lots of ways, and yet I still think you still had some of that. You mentioned your background in agriculture and an interest in politics, and yeah. a bit about this uh, uh, about those things coming to play, and some of the things you're interested in it in now in the in the church. As far as I can uh, discern.
1: From yeah, our
0: relationship and you've written some things here recently and you're interested also in the, the, uh, the nature of the church in the secular age. And I'm just curious, Glenn, did you come from a farm background? Did you grow up on a farm?
2: Yeah. Yeah. That, that, okay. yeah, very deeply involved in that. My family, my, my dad and my brother's still farm.
0: Okay. Well, that's and awesome. So, yeah. So, so then that, you got, and then you got interested in the politics as well. And so, what was something that in your growing up years, either from the farm or from the political nature, that struck a nerve with you? That struck a nerve either of injustice or something that I can do something about? And now you're finding yourself trying to do something about this in the through the context of the, of the church.
2: Well, I think you know, being raised in a in a Christian home and um, and, and my family had a large farm, has a large farm. There was a sense of responsibility and duty that came with that, and I think that 's where the the need to be attentive to justice came from uh, i think that 's how all those things connected to that as I was growing up. There was just this sense of responsibility cultivated uh, for the for what was going on in the world around us, you know to the kind of idea of to whom much is given much is expected mm-hmm. awesome. and um, so, so that 's where a lot of those things came from. And, and, and at the same time, the, the hope that that can be lived out in the life of the church was a seed planted early on. And um, all those things still stick with me, even the metaphors I'm choosing to use in this conversation cultivate, you know, planted, those things. Well, and, as, as
0: we get in a minute into some of the terminology you use in the article that you wrote, I think there's a, just kind of a, uh, in a sense, of a biological or kind of a, 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 an organism type of. Uh, Uh, portion to that when we talk about the word taxonomy, for instance, but uh, I'll get into that in a second. But uh, here's what I wanted just to take us just for a second here, Glenn. And that is, that has to do with your view of the world and the place of the church, in the world right now, as we talk, we're talking in the middle of October of 2020 and 2020 has been a heck of a year by anyone's standards. We're coming up on a national election here in three weeks. We are in the middle of racial unrest that has been traumatic and dramatic for our country. We have economic upheavals. We have great tension in politics and the legal systems and law enforcement and all kinds of things. And certainly in our church, we have great stresses in our church, you know, we have both internal stresses in terms of how people feel about one another, and you have financial stresses and stresses of organization and, and such, and certainly we have stresses over the levels, over issues of human sexuality within our church. And You have said in some of the things you shared with me and some of the things you've written that you are really interested in how the church relates in a secular age in a secular world. And I'd like for you to kind of reflect with me just a little bit about where we're at right now, your perspective on the world as so, we stand right now and the church in it.
2: So I think we have, I think if I'm going to be specific to Indiana because I think my journey connects with how these observations started. To yes, happen. please do. Um, so when I was appointed, my first two, my first assignment was a small church in a small town, New Waver, with Indiana. And then, then I had another that uh, was there for three and a half years, and then I had five years in another small town at an appointment that was a full time appointment. But what you start to get a sense of in a lot of our rural communities in Indiana is that economically speaking things aren't what they used to be and so from a from a farm kid point of view and from the point of view of somebody who at, at least dabbled in agriculture economics for a while, that's not hard to understand you could you could go. Uh, to to the steeple of the last church I served. And at one time, you could have looked out from there and seen 40 homesteads where 40 families were making a living. And now you go to that same place and you can count about four or five grain legs where there are one operation. So you've gone from 40 to five, and that's reflected in the life of the church from 40 households that are providing uh, support for that church and its life and its ministry. Down to one or two that are providing the most significant financial support, and that creates all kinds of issues in the life of our church and leadership, and it creates all kind of issues for the sustainability of faith communities in rural areas. And so, I, anyway, I had noticed that, I had been aware of that, and if you look all across Indiana, this is a this is not a, an isolated phenomenon. Uh, there's a guy by the name of Morton Marcus, who's a syndicated columnist that used to be associated with the IU School of Business. I don't know if you're
0: I've been there with his stuff quite a bit, actually, for years. Yeah,
2: I don't agree with everything he says, but he made an interesting observation a month ago that really gets at this, that 43 counties in the state of Indiana uh, import uh, more than 50% of their average household income. So 43 counties uh, import more than half of their average, average household income from another county. Yes. And in total, 73 counties in Indiana are net income importers, which means there's only 20 counties where all of the income of Indiana or a lot of the, the most substantial part of the income of Indiana is coming from. So if you start to think about that, that means we have literally hundreds upon hundreds upon hundreds of our United Methodist faith communities in small towns and in places that 30 and 40 and 50 years ago, folks could make a living and not ever leave the zip code. And they can't anymore, and so I, that was one of the first things I was really seeing as a major pressure on our system, just as a, a church system, and, um, and and that was something I was reflecting on a lot. And then I came to Lapel, where I serve now. And when I came to Lapel, those pressures are not present in the same way. Uh, folks don't earn their income in Lapel's zip code, but it's kind of an ex-urban small town community out just beyond the suburbs of Indianapolis. So economically, the pressures uh, are not there where we have a negative population uh, growth. But what I did see when I came to LaPelle was something that was different than the smaller rural community. And it was just that people did not relate to spiritual things or organized religion, even in the way they did in a smaller town in Indiana. And, um, and... You know, you spend very much time with people anywhere. You're gonna you're where you see this, and it seems like it's only accelerated in the last couple of years, and particularly even during COVID. And that that's the phenomenon of secularity, and that's what uh, the great landmark work, which as you mentioned, I, I'm just in love with, and I want everybody to read. I go everywhere I go, I tell people to read Charles Taylor and the Secular Age, and it's an 800 page book. So most people just laugh at me and walk away. <laughs> Brad, <laughs> they say uh, I'm not. I'm not going to uh, do that. If you really want a, a Reader's Digest version, James K. A. Smith has a "How Not to Be Secular." That's a shorter version and uh, reiterating a lot of the same principles. But Taylor just does a great job of describing what uh, what has gone on in Western society, and in particular the United States and Canada. He traces in a really helpful way. Mm-hmm. To help under
0: So what so out of his work just really cut to the heart of the matter for you, given that most people aren't going to read an eight hundred page book. Yeah. So, what is, so that struck you that you really want others like our audience to hear?
2: So I think people need to understand that secularity means three things. It means that there's a decreased religious participation. We see that everywhere. Numerically, you can look at uh, you'd know the statistics better than I could, but I bet it's I bet it's a very high percentage of our churches in in our Indian American conference are the victims of that. There's just decreased religious participation. Uh, There's a decreased role of religion in public life. That's another uh, aspect of secularity. And then there's the third aspect of secularity that it's possible that you cannot believe anything. And that's socially acceptable.
0: Yes. Okay.
2: So that, that uh, you're at retirement. I am far from retirement. You're nearing that that time of season of life,
0: yes. <laughs> By your own
2: admission, Brad.
0: Yes, and, sir. And
2: I... You were when you were 30 years earlier in your career. It was just a lot less socially acceptable, I think, right, for people to just say, "Well, I don't believe much of anything." I'm not necessarily an atheist. That, that just is a much yeah more now than it would have been.
0: Well, yeah, I would be it would be uh, unusual for people to uh, not profess some sort of a faith. Uh, leaning of some sort or some sort of a religious affiliation and now it's not unusual at all. You know, my own, yeah. uh, you know, people, adult uh, children of my life are lean that way in many, uh, in many ways. And certainly even the church I serve now just 10 years ago had, uh, well over a hundred people in it and now it's got about 30, you yeah, know? So, cool. so yeah. just use that as example. And I don't think it's too unusual no. uh, churches and I'm in an urban city but especially in exurban and, and uh, rural settings, be exacerbated by some of those uh, factors that you mentioned, in terms of the uh, loss, the economic uh, opportunities. Are yeah, so they're turned upside and down.
2: Urban and rural, we've got a, a, a double whammy, right? Mm-hmm. We've got the economic things that are going on for us, and we have the, this this secularity, which is setting it in a big way. And, I don't necessarily, by the way, think that that's a boogeyman. And I think if you went and spent the time to read 800 pages of Charles Taylor, he would mm-hmm. say the same thing. He would say it's not necessarily that secularity is evil. It's just a very different ecosystem and environment.
0: Sure. Well, with, with challenges and with uh, bad things come opportunity as well. And I'm, yeah. I am one of these persons who is hopeful that even this, midst of this year of 2020, in the midst of COVID and political unrest and racial stress that hopefully we can come out the other side and some better place a better opportunity if we take advantage of the opportunities that are there before us
2: yeah well and 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 there is opportunity because uh, secularity does not mean atheism uh, so it doesn't mean that people are resistant to religion necessarily or re- resistant to spiritual meaning in their life and we see that all over the place uh, there's a guy uh, David Zoll who's got Got a, a good book, Seculosities, where he talks about how parenting, and how sports, and how romance, and how all kinds of other things have become these places, politics, political action, have all all become places that we find that kind of spiritual meaning and people are looking for spiritual. Yeah.
0: So, so People are looking for those relationships where they don't necessarily find it in the church these days. And that's, yeah. that's where I think is the rub. What we need to talk about a minute here is they're not – They're finding it in, sometimes in politics. Sometimes it's on online groups and things like this. Sometimes it's in their local uh, fantasy football team, things like that. They're finding those kind of relationships. What's going on in the church right now, Glenn, from your eye as a young pastor, who's uh, been around for a few years, but it has this eye towards understanding the secular culture we're in. But let's talk about the state of the church right now and where we stand in terms of relating to that culture, which still has a need for Jesus, still has a need for Christ, still has a need for connection to something greater than, than themselves. I believe that at least. Yeah. Where is the church at? Give me your take on the church and what where are we at?
2: Well, I, I think the culture doesn't just have a need for it. I think there's an opening for
0: it, hmm. basically. Yes. Uh,
2: if, if all beliefs are contestable, if, if we can, if, if nobody's belief is certain, in, in our social imaginary, in our in our conversations in a public space, then that means Christianity is a legitimate option, <laughs> and and people I think are not just uh, not just open to it. I think there's still a hunger for what Christ has to bring. Uh, the challenge is I don't see I, I see churches spending so much time grieving that shift uh, and and refusing to adapt to those shifts. Um, that it's it's hard to um it's hard to find situations where where we see a lot a lot of churches writ large really making the shift and the adaptations they need to make successfully. And and I guess I'm just a proponent of um I realize there are things we need to grieve in what we are going to lose and perceive we're losing in these transformations, but it's it's also high time to just make some adaptations. And some shifts and the culture we're in at the moment
0: is providing us some real opportunities to do that. Yeah, I think a lot of I've heard it said, I believe it is a case that the COVID crisis has accelerated the rate of change if we take advantage of it, if we do it or we can get stuck or go just, you know, the one one way of change, of course, is to die, is just to give up. Yeah. But for all of us, we at least have an opportunity to change, you know? Yeah. Whether it's maybe, maybe you're more aware of your health, for instance, if the disease is out there and people wear a mask and take better care of their diet and so on, maybe they're more aware of their health when they were before, for instance. And, but we have unhealthy churches and we have an unhealthy denomination in many ways, at least many people would say so. That's also impacted by the secular world that we're in right now. And, yeah,
2: I think one of the real opportunities that COVID has been, a it's is just a good crisis to get stuff done in. Don't waste an opportunity. And I hate to say, I know there's a lot of suffering and pain that's going on with COVID. And I don't want to diminish that. But from a church administration point of view, um, it's a good opportunity to help your people see why changes need to be made. And at the same time, a lot of these trends in secularity have increased over the last eight months, it seems. You know, so we're... It just seems like time has moved faster in in regard to a lot of those things. But I don't think COVID is the only thing that's presenting us an opportunity. I think the the dialogues on race are providing us a real
0: opportunity. Oh, yes, my goodness, yes.
2: Um, And and the big reason for that is that for the church to really adapt and and to really understand what it is going to take to offer Christ and to be a presence in the world that's being born right now, it's going to have to adopt a posture. Of, of marginalization. Like the world that's being born now will not be a, a world in which um, w- in which United Methodists are consulted about public policy decisions at every turn. Uh, and that was the world we were in, in many ways, uh, especially in a place like Indiana with at one time governor and senators and uh, all of the people in positions of power, many of them connected with the United Methodist Church. Um, so... so we're going to have to understand what it means to operate from a more marginal position. And that to me is why the racial dialogues are so key because they're not, those dialogues don't just invite us to make room for people who aren't white or people of color or people who aren't like us. If we take those dialogues really seriously, they're inviting us to understand that, um, that, that there are things that we can really learn in a deep and a valuable way from people who have been the victims of oppression, who have been members of marginalized communities. Sometimes that's people of color. Sometimes that's LGBTQ uh, folks.
0: Um, and so anyway, I think I think that those... Well, let me, let me reflect with you just a second on that in terms of marginalized folks. We Certainly have lived in a church for the most part, which has been in the majority. What I mean by that, mostly white, mostly middle class, upper middle class, rural suburban in large part, uh, where it's been the majority. And now we live in a world where things are shifting socioeconomically, uh, racially, and so on and so forth, and certainly politically, uh, as well as issues like LGBTQ issues and uh, human sexuality. And the church has not always shifted to meet those needs, and therefore we find our church in crisis. Because that's in one of the other crises that we have. You mentioned the racial, all the things we're talking about relate to the crisis we have in the church. And it seems to me that folks, both politically and in the church, then it's oftentimes taken up camps, an extreme left uh, or extreme right. Uh, there are certain people there who are, you know, consider themselves progressive and certain people consider themselves traditionalist. And yet there's a lot of folks who would, in one form or another, call themselves centrist or people who want to find a way, find a pathway to come out to a place where the church can still be effectively reach the people that matter to them. Their kids, their mom, their dad, their neighbors, their, you know, their kids who go to their local high school who aren't, who are far from God and they still care about him. And they also care about uh they do care about people in Nicaragua and other places in in other places as well. And they don't see the church doing quite an effective job. And you, you wrote an article here that I find kind of interesting about uh, your role or your thinking about centrist people. And I would consider myself one of those centrist people. I think many people do trying to find a way to do ministry, to do church in the midst of the stress that we're under. And you, you titled your, your article, which was in United Methodist Insight and we'll put a, in our show notes, put a connection, a link to this article. It's called The Taxonomy of United Methodist uh, Centrists. And I was really into in that word taxonomy because to me, that brought up my mind is maybe just like biology and uh, organisms yeah. and things like that, uh, kind of a, you know, how those are categorized and so on. But I'd like to say a little bit what motivated you to start to get into, try to break down this idea of what it means to be a centrist and how that relates to some of our discussion here about relating to the uh, secularism of our world right
2: now. Well, that, that particular article came about uh, because I'd had r- repeated conversations with friends and colleagues where I heard it expressed, I just don't know what centrist means. And, and I think when folks say that, when, where I was hearing it said from was from the perspective of someone who's, who's progressive, Mm -hmm. And who's saying, if this is what's right, and there's justice about it, why would you have a label that says you're, that that negotiates that in any way, I think was the kind of critique that was off. And so that, that provoked me just to think about, well, what does the label centrist mean? And it's been something I've thought about too. I think you're, you're kind of hinting at maybe a common theme for centrist is a pragmatism. Yeah, Uh,
0: yeah. You know, uh, for instance, I, I knew there was a, a movement a year or two ago. Uh, we're recording this in October 2020, but in the in 2018 and leading up to the General Conference of 19, there was a movement called a Way Forward. Yeah, try to find a navigate a way through, you know, the uh, the pressures. Of course, the, the you know the, the the pressure point in the United Methodist Church had to do with uh, with uh, human sexuality, the ordination of homosexual persons, and the uh, uh, Christian union unions of gay persons and how those were how those were negotiated and navigated. Uh, but really it had to do with how we, we do church in lots of ways and how we do do the life. But there was this the same feeling, how can we find a way to get through this? And it seemed like we've evolved now to a place where it's more likely than not that we are going to find some separation or some new way of doing things the next year or two. But uh, but there's a lot of folks, I think, who would love to have seen a way to find a way forward. And I I just like your take on it. You broke this down in your article. And I think your question that you were uh, faced with by folks, what is this centrism thing? You know, if there's 10% who are on the far uh, right traditionalists and 10% on the far left of uh, progressives, if we just arbitrarily take those deals, if there's an 80% of us who are somewhere in the middle uh, – how yeah, do you understand kind of it? Those
2: are the numbers. I don't know. I don't I know. Do, I'm
0: just making up numbers yeah. right now.
2: Yeah, I don't know. And I, I think it kind of depends on what you mean and how you talk. And that's to me, that was on some level, there's an absurdity to the question. Yes. Of what does it mean to be a, well? That that in a way is just so such a a pointless, stupid question <laughs> in a way. And mm-hmm. I don't, I don't mean any disrespect to people who say, well, what does it mean to be a centrist? I don't understand. I don't really understand the label either, except mm-hmm. for how I tried to explore it in that article. Um, but in, in a way, it's a a, a silly question because it, it can mean so many different things based on whatever particular thing you're talking about. Mm. And so I guess I wanted to, uh, the only way I knew how to process that was with humor and, and the whole absurdity of, uh, of, all, of how we break ourselves into groups like that. And at the same time, there is something that's helpful about exploring, uh, some of the ways we, some of the ways we live into that. And, um, and so I just want to explore different ways people lived into that kind of pragmatic attempt to negotiate the moment we're in. Yes. Um, while tipping my hat to the absurdity of the labels at the same time. <laughs> we well, you certainly, yeah, you certainly, yeah, you certainly have at what describing, uh, Anything meaningful beyond beyond whatever it means in the person's head, a
0: Well, you gave a lot of you. You broke it down into several labels, whether you know, kind of silly in their own way, within your article, and they kind of have a Latin type of flavor to or to it. Uh, yeah. Just, just give, just, just give, a, give us one or two of them, like you guys. I
2: apologize said. to the Roman Empire, which I microaggress against.
0: <laughs> wow. Well. Well, first is give us one of those areas I'm looking at citrus gratuitous something like yeah. that and uh, maybe help us understand to our listeners a little bit what you were looking at here to try to put a you know a, a level of absurd observation to the situation our church finds ourselves in
2: yeah well the, the centrist uh, th- that that particular category uh, I write Latin I don't pronounce it so that's the, <laughs> I write fake Latin I don't pronounce it there you go. Uh, but that particular category was talking about there's a lot of folks who just want to extend grace to other people and they want to make room for other people. And they also want to make room for folks who aren't as inclusive as they are because their journey uh, towards being inclusive, towards LGBTQ folks, has been a journey. And so I think there's a lot of folks that end up in that category where um, they want to see the United Methodist Church, how to figure out how to have doors that are open truly for everybody and and fully in the life of the church. And and yet when they say everybody, I think that they mean that they want to figure out a way to extend grace to people who have a more traditional perspective too. And I have a lot of sympathy with that because there are people that have been a part of my life and ministry and call, I'm sure you're this way too and even a part of the churches I serve that are folks with a more traditional perspective. And I don't want them to feel uh, that be- because we're we trying to figure out how to include somebody else that they need of course, to. Because ex-
0: grace should mean that we have a loving, accepting approach to everyone. And part of what we're dealing with here is the feeling that some folks have. And I would just say, you know, particularly some folks in the uh, LGBTQ community who do not feel grace right now or right. And so
2: in that, that first categorization that's the thing in that particular taxonomy that's, that's the thing I identified is that that particular variety of centrists will do best when they're exposed to the harm mm-hmm. that is done in an ongoing way to folks who do feel excluded mm-hmm. in the life of the church and who feel harmed and oppressed and injured uh, mm-hmm. by a community of grace and mercy and justice that should not be experienced in that way
0: mm-hmm. Um, we had yeah. a mark. We had a marketing campaign in our church a number of years ago. You you may or may not been, uh, might have been before your time, perhaps, but it was called "Open Doors, Open Minds, Open Hearts," and the the the, the imagery was of an open door. Yeah, right. And then, um, so we had marketing materials and TV commercials and all kinds of stuff regarding that, and it was a good image and so on. But I think some folks then in recent Years we recent times have kind of felt like well, not so much. Uh, we need to reframe and re- redefine how we really are if well, we are open and if so yeah. how are we going to reframe that?
2: It, it's a very ironic thing, mm-hmm. the image of the open door because then because then there are groups of people who feel like the door has been definitively slammed in their face mm-hmm. again and again, and that really is more of a problem now than it's ever been precisely because of some of those secular trends that are present uh, in our world, more than ever, uh, people care about personal authenticity Mm -hmm. and they care about being able to come as who they are uh, to the
0: faith community. And it's a settled, you know what, Glenn, for a lot of folks, including my three adult children, for instance, who similarities to you in some cases, I would, would imagine this is a settled issue, you know, already, you know, the settled issue is, you know, the authenticity of relationships is primary. And when they see things that they consider uh, to be inauthentic or somehow contrived when well, no they're part of it. And I think there are some folks who have that sensibility about the church and about other institutions that it's contrived or manipulative.
2: Yeah. yeah. That's so that's such a, that's such a key observation and that so much relates to how the discussions about uh, sexuality or race uh, intersect with what's going on in the culture writ large outside of those conversations and about the kind of adaptations that we really have to wrap our mind around as a church Mm -hmm. Um, that you can't say the door is open unless you're really willing to figure out how that door is going to be. And you got to
0: actually do it. (laughs)
2: Yeah, you, you can't actually do it. You you gotta, gotta, and it's gotta happens. be
0: an actual physical tangible thing. You actually have to do it, not just give it lip service and um or somehow wrap it around some scriptural uh you know taco shell or something like that that tries to I don't know where that analogy came from, but uh where it's something where it's just not doesn't have any real substance well,
2: to it. So, so, for instance, another category of centrist I explore is the fixerensis, the centrist fixerensis. And, mm-hmm. and in that case, that, that kind of taxonomy would say, uh, what we have to do about some of these debates is just get a settlement.
0: Mm-hmm.
2: And then we can move on. Yeah. And as long as everybody agrees to quit fighting, we'll be okay.
0: Yeah.
2: Now, if you understand what we just said about what, what your kids are saying about the need for authenticity and, and, and the need for the, the church and Christians to do what they say, mm-hmm. then, then you'll understand that this is not ever going to be something we can just uh, right. stop fighting on and live within a certain brokered arrangement and just fuse it together. Um, whatever happens has to be authentic.
0: Right. Because authenticity implies that you have to have an ongoing relationship and an ongoing relationship requires ongoing dialogue and conversation. It's not just, you know, this is the way it is and that's where we we stand. We we have to be an ongoing relationship. Yeah.
2: Yeah. I think that's, I think that's key. And Mm -hmm. I think that if, um, if centrists really should be pushed on, it's in those two ways, actually. First, mm-hmm. uh, and the one referring to those that practice grace, that it's great to practice grace, but we have to do that with a real acknowledgement of harm.
1: Mm-hmm. But
2: then secondly, um, y- you know, we also, to be, to be pragmatic doesn't mean that you're going to find a forced or fixed or fused solution to mm-hmm. these conversations. Right. We're just going to have to have the conversation. We're going to have to figure out how to mm-hmm. be who we are, to be authentic to who we are, and also faithful to the call that the gospel is on.
0: Well, having said all this, you know, we began our conversation with kind of your faith story and your own imp, uh, influence of your uh, farm upbringing and politics and education and so on, and your early church experiences. Some affirmations there. Then we talked a little bit about your understanding about the state of the church now, given all the pressures we have and the secular secular uh, dynamics that we have. Want to ask you, Glenn, where do you think we're going? What do you think are next steps? Where do you think we're how do you think things are going to evolve and progress in the next year or two or three in the United Methodist Church? Particularly, I'm thinking about younger clergy such as yourself and it against some of these stresses in these local churches. Where are we going?
2: Well, I think um, put me down is very dubious. Okay. Yeah. Uh, very dubious about. Um, I, I think the next, I think the next fifteen to twenty years are going to be incredibly painful, uh, from the perspective of of United Methodism, and that we are going to be faced with a lot of difficult conversations. They won't be over when we, if if we were to figure out tomorrow how to, how to deal with the debates about human sexuality. Um,
0: it won't be over at general conference of t- September of 21. Right. If we have it, it it's, will not be just a is, cut and dry deal. So that is a- an
2: important matter of justice for many people and for the whole church, but it is, it is um, not constitutive of the total problem that we're faced with. Yes. And, and so I'm, I'm very dubious about, I know we'll get to hope, but, uh, <laughs> but I, I just have to say, I I think with kind of clear eyes, I'm looking at the next 15 to 20 years and saying i don't expect it to be a picnic yes. um i expect it to be a lot of difficult adaptations and a lot of a lot of folks who don't um who who say i'm not in for that i don't want to sign up for that kind of the kind of things that the church is going to have to do to be the presence of the triune god in our culture today uh that i, I can't sign up for that kind of shift. yeah
0: um,
2: part of why i want to ex- part of part of my life, though, and my call is wanting to explore how we're going to do that. I'm committed to that.
0: Yes, look to the process there. I, I would compare it a little bit to when families go through some really difficult times. A lot of families are right now. Losing a job, having a loved one contract COVID and get sick and perhaps die, going through a divorce, going through a interracial marriage in a family, going through a, a, a person coming out as gay in a family, any number of these things. Uh, can be uh, approached through just denial or through refusal to accept or through anger or through, you know, people being, you know, just bitter and angry oh, yeah. or they can re- be somehow come out resolved through the hard work of family building and construction that, and reconstruction that comes by when you have hard things happen. And, you know, if we are some form of an organism in the, in the United Methodist church and whatever it evolves to be, it's my hope and prayer that we will choose and folks like you will choose to do the hard work and do the hard conversations. And that kind of leads me to where I want to take us. You know, we, Our podcast is all about strengthening the connection through conversation and commentary. And we've had some great conversation and commentary here. But I want to talk about how, how in the midst of this painful moment, we can get stronger. So what do you see are some of the strong points that we're dealing with? And maybe some points of hope or some, you know, you, you've talked about how there's going to be some tough times, but I want to see, do you see any things that are hopeful? Well,
2: I, so I think, I think uh, wherever God is, there is hope. And um, God, the word of God comes to us in both confrontation like we just talked about, we are, we are in the midst of a confrontation and a reckoning in a lot of ways with the age in which we live, with the legacies of harm and sin that are behind us. Um, so I think there's hope in that. I'm I not a person that approaches that confrontation, uh, viewing it as a negative thing. I think it's a positive thing, a thing that's going to bring about justice and transformation. The word of God also comes to us in comfort. What does that mean? I'm not sure yet. Uh, I, I got a sabbatical grant from the Lilly Foundation next year where uh, my family and I are going to be in Norway, and we're going to be with United Methodists and others who are there in a, a in an area in a, a, that's experienced in a more advanced secularity than the United States heretofore. And we're going to be exploring what churches do there. Uh, the, the things I see that are hopeful in the conversations I've had with folks in Norway or even here um, tend to have to do with one of two things they have to do with one us creating spaces for authenticity outside of our standard worship practices. And so, um, Brad, I know one thing that you do at at one of your congregations is the, uh, assisting the local elementary school with the learning pods and uh, those kind of things. So, so small groups that are built around mission like that, when I see churches doing that, that to me looks like a sign of hope. I think the church can work in that way. Uh, one thing we're doing a lot of at, at congregation I serve are small groups that gather out in our local brewery or in a local restaurant uh, or home or other other places like that, what our folks in our annual conference would call fresh expressions. You yes. know, those are signs of hope in a big way. to me. I think the other one is another thing that you're doing and that you've, you've got uh at Otterburn, there's the ministry with the Hispanic community that's been going on at Otterburn. That's it's at Otterburn, right?
0: Yeah, Otterbine, but that's okay. Oh, okay,
2: yeah. sure. So uh, up up in the northwest district, it's you know the the town. Oh, of okay. okay. So yeah. Uh, anyway. Um, so that kind of ministry, I think I take a lot of hope in too, because that is an example, I, I would hope, I, I don't know because I haven't talked to you about it a lot, but from what I've seen, it's an example and it can be an example of the church learning and listening to and not just making room for folks, but really learning the lessons and letting, uh, let, letting those folks who are not what we would typically think of as the people who are in, in position of power in the United Methodist Church in Indiana. Mm-hmm. begin to guide and lead the church. And, and that that kind of experience to me is very hopeful because that's what we're going to need uh, to have those kind of perspectives of people of color and of other uh, marginalized communities really in the driver's seat to help us navigate what comes next. And so I feel those are things that I celebrate and I think yeah uh, are really significant.
0: Well, that, that's all true. And yet here's what I see as well here, Glenn. It's going to take people who are willing to take that journey and willing to be leaders or Moses's, if you will, and Aaron's and that whole journey through the wilderness. And I see folks like yourself and some other younger clergy I've encountered, not a younger clergy, but, but, but all uh, all (laughs) people are willing to take the, take the journey and do the hard conversations and do what it needs to happen. And, uh, and that's, I'm, thankful for that, people who are thinking through the implications. I'm a sociologist by my background. I have a degree in sociology and love what you're doing in terms of trying to understand the nature of the integration of what's going on in the world and the church and so on. We cannot be in these silos and things like that. doesn't work, never has worked. But uh, love the work that you're, you're doing and you've written a fascinating piece. And I got a feeling there's a book in you somewhere and some other things like that are going on. And you're, your, your article is called The Taxonomy of United Methodist Centrist and UnitedMethodistInsight.com, and we'll put links to that and what we're talking about. And it's been a pleasure having you with us here today, Glenn, uh, here on the United Methodist People podcast. And I'll just give you the last word, my man. Do you have anything you just want to share to the folks uh, who may be listening? Uh, just a word of, uh, of grace and peace to people as we come to our conclusion of our conversation today.
2: I think I think the word would be that the, the dialogues we are engaged in as a church right now, dialogues that center on justice and center on hope and mercy, um, that all through scripture, uh, you know, we don't see any of those evidence to be easy or straightforward in scripture. Uh, we, we see those dialogues to be dialogues which are costly dialogues. Mm. And we are in, in the midst of and at the beginning of a lengthy and costly dialogue between church and world. But uh, but what we also see in scripture is the promise in Christ Jesus and by the power of the Holy Spirit, that those will be graced dialogues and that there will be hope and reconciliation uh, on the other side of them. And so, you know, uh, I hope people take away from this um, an earnest Warning and sense of how costly the dialogue we are engaged in will be, and yet also the hopefulness of God's presence in that and God's capacity to bring about reconciliation and healing through that, if we'll just go along for the conversation.
0: What you're sharing there, my friend, sounds suspiciously Wesleyan and conspicuously Christian. So I'm well, glad I, to I hear like that. that. I like. Yeah. Does that make me an orthodoxist a centrist? Yeah. There you go. Oh, well, that sounds like another article there. So there no, that's, you go.
2: that's one of those taxonomies. <laughs> oh, yeah. There you, thinking,
0: there you go. There you go. Well, it's been a pleasure having you with us here today. He is the pastor of the Ford Street United Methodist Church in Lapel Indiana, and the author of A Taxonomy of United Methodist Centrists, which you can find in the United Methodist Insight. And uh, you, our guest today, Reverend Glenn Nepp. Many thanks to Rev. Glenn Knepp on our conversation here about many things in the life of the church. I hope you heard his passion for the church and helping to find a way and understanding where we're at right now in the church and helping to find commonality and to understanding what it means to be a centrist and maybe, just maybe, we can find a way forward. Maybe we're not going to be the the same. We certainly will not be the same as we used to be as something evolves in the the, the United Methodist Church. We are the body of Christ. We are the unity of the body of Christ, and we are called upon to proclaim the good news of Jesus Christ regardless. We are called upon to be that voice which is about transforming the world world with the good news of Jesus Christ. Yes, our church is a bit beaten up these days, but we are still here. We're still alive. And I thank Glenn for helping us to uh, delve a little deeper in what it means to be a centrist and define our commonality, to not just... See the world only as being absorbed in the liberal understanding or a progressive or a traditionalist understanding, but to understand what it means to be a centrist, even though it's a little tricky and a little hard to get, get a handle on. Perhaps, perhaps, there's room for all of us in this church, even if we have different understandings. That's my hope, at least, as we'll come out a better place uh, over the course of time as we find our way in the United Methodist Church moving forward. We're still the church, everybody. We're still the the church friends, and we're still called upon to share the good news of Jesus Christ. Perhaps it was uh, Charles Wesley who said it very well, I believe, uh, in his hymn, Are We Get Alive? Which we often sing at the funeral of a United Methodist uh, clergy person when they pass away. And I just want to share that with you now as a way to close our conversation together. Charles Wesley wrote this. And are we yet alive? And see each other's face. Glory and thanks to Jesus give for his Almighty grace. That's a good way to leave our conversation here today on the United Methodist People podcast. This is Reverend Dr. Brad Miller encouraging
1: you to always do all the good that you can. Thanks so much for listening to the United Methodist People Podcast with Rev. Dr. Brad Miller. You can continue the conversation and commentary about strengthening the connection in the United Methodist Church to accomplish our mission of making disciples of Jesus Christ for the transformation of the world. Visit the United Methodist People Podcast on the web at United Methodist Podcast.com and connect at facebook.com slash United Methodist Podcast. And always do all the good you can.